everybody. Uh, today, we've got Jason Pfeiffer, editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and author of Build for Tomorrow. Jason, thanks for jumping on. Thanks for having me. And maybe we'll do the blooper reel later for everybody um, before I got that. <laughs> it was a good I one. I was trying to nail my intro. and I was just, anyway. Uh, Everyone's Jason, done it. I got to ask you this because since we last spoke, a ton of interesting developments in the world of AI, really just transforming the business landscape. From your vantage point, what are you seeing? What's your take on all this? Chat GPT, large language models, et cetera. So here's the most informative experience that I've had. About four months ago, four months ago, sure, I was hired by a regional law firm to speak at their attorney retreat in San Francisco. So I flew out to San Francisco and I got in front of all these lawyers at this fancy hotel on stage. And what my talk is, is always about personal change management, just to say, how can people find new opportunities in times of change and disruption for themselves? How do they understand the relationship with change? And when we got to the Q&A, all the attorneys wanted to talk about with ChatGPT. Almost every question was yeah. about ChatGPT. And I found that so interesting. And afterwards, I was talking with the CEO of this law firm. And I said, why are all your lawyers obsessed with ChatGPT? <laughs> Not another question, yeah. And yeah. And he said, he said, well, here's, here's what they wouldn't say during that session. What they won't say is that the thing that they're really worried about is that ChatGPT is going to make their work more efficient. And if their work becomes more efficient, then they aren't able to bill as many hours and lawyers work on billable hours. And that's the thing that they're really concerned about. To which I immediately said, well, that's fantastic, isn't it? Like that's, that is an excellent thing. And the reason for that is because everybody hates billable hours. Everybody. Find me a person in the world who has hired a lawyer and likes that they pay them on billable hours. Find mm -hmm. me an attorney who hasn't lost their lives to their clients because of the chase for billable hours. It is a truly terrible system that everybody hates, but that we have kept because nobody has had an incentive to step outside and say, why don't we do it a different way? It just hasn't made sense. Why would a law firm do that? But now, now they're going to be forced to because motion writing is going to become more efficient and there are going to be other ways in which AI is going to become useful in law. And as a result, we are going to break a thing that is already broken because billable hours is already broken, but we've kept it around and now it is finally going to break. And somebody, somebody out there is going to come up with the better way to build a relationship between a law firm and their client. And then frankly, also probably figure out a better way to build relationships with people who can't currently afford legal services. And that is fantastic. So that's what I said to the CEO, to which he said, that is exactly the reason we just hired a head of AI to try to figure this stuff out for us. And this exchange, I started to realize, is kind of at the root of so much of what we see happening in AI. For example, I have a lot of friends who are law, who are law professors. Well, I have a, one friend who's a law Good professor. Friend base, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I have, I have a lot of friends yeah. who are just professors. And right. their students are using ChatGPT to write their papers, to which I say, Fantastic. You know why? Because maybe it'll stop professors from assigning essays because that was never a good way to evaluate whether mm -hmm. or not a student actually absorbed the information. We were just stuck with it. It was something that was broken that we kept 
And now we're going to break the broken thing and we can actually create something that is better and that is made for now. So that's how I see AI fitting into our world. I think that ultimately what it's going to do is it's going to break things that are already broken and it's going to enable us to create new solutions that people actually want. I think it's a really great way of putting it. And I haven't quite heard that vantage point yet because, you know, when you look at billable hours, it is such an antiquated concept when you really want to just look at, did you get me results or not? Yeah. But I guess the the converse side is, are people, how are we going to measure? And maybe this is, I guess, the challenge, but how do we measure when something was successful or not? I think so many people probably presumably in law, copywriters, et cetera. It's like, what's a, what's a reasonable output when AI is assisting you? Should it be 10,000 articles a day, 100 a day, a million? What's the quality? How do we distinguish that? That's a really great question. And it's one that I think in every industry, people will have to grapple with in different ways. I don't have the answer, but I can pretty well tell you that the answer in law may not be the answer in academia, may not be the answer in other in other things. And that's good, right? Because, I mean, look, I've had to hire my fair share of lawyers, and I've never been happy about it. And to see that they uh, that I am paying the same amount of money for them to spend 15 minutes responding to my email as I am for them to spend 15 minutes on my motion doesn't make any sense. That <laughs> angers me. It's yeah. stupid. And that that is, I mean, you know, you ask a good question, how do we measure success? Well, I would argue that we are not currently measuring it. So why don't we figure out how to measure it? Yeah. Yeah. I guess we're just measuring hours right now. Well, let me ask you this, because, you know, you're in the publishing game, obviously. So what what's your perception or review on on this, you know, generative text? Do you think writers should be using it? I mean, at Entrepreneur, do you want writers using it? Do you, What's, where are we? With yeah. <laughs> so part part of the answer goes back to breaking things that are already broken, right? Which is to say that a lot of the publishing industry's models is completely broken, right? I mean, it, if you surf around the internet, the vast majority of media that you encounter, whether it's traditional media like Entrepreneur or whether it's brand new media, uh, you know, sometimes organizations that become established like BuzzFeed and sometimes just kind of fly by night organizations. You know, a lot of these, like what they're doing is a mixture of creating real unique value in the world. And then also just playing to the game that publishing has had to play to, which is getting clicks and views for ad impressions. Right. So, you know, I, I don't know that people know this, but you should know this, which is that pretty much everybody who works at a media organization uses some kind of tool that flags when stories at other publications get more than average traffic, right? So we know how much traffic the average story at Forbes is going to get or whatever. I, I mean, I don't have that number in my head, but you know, right, there, are, there are platforms right, that right. have that. And so when a story starts doing significantly better, writers and entrepreneurs see it and writers at Fast Company see it, and Inc. see it, and everyone sees it. And then what do they do next? They start to write their own versions of that story, which is the way in which something very quickly gets replicated across the internet, where something happens in one place, right? Like somebody gets a, you know, I don't know, somebody is the first person to see some stupid thing that Elon Musk did, and they write about it, and it does really well on, on Inc.com, and then suddenly that story is everywhere. Everyone's got their own version of that. Let me ask you a question. Does that add value to the world? I mean, it may be if it gets more reach, but I would want 
I would hope that each publisher would have something unique to add, not just but they uh, don't parroting. They don't because they because they've just they've just yeah. spent because what they've done is they've hired a they've hired a junior writer right to scan the internet all day to write stories that are trafficking well elsewhere. Does that add value to the world? Could add more. Could add more. Yeah. And you know what I would argue is that that junior writer who is spending all day surfing around the internet looking for stories to write a new version of that junior writer, their talent and their perspective and their gift to the world is being absolutely wasted by that system. Well, they're absolutely. not learning to be independent thinkers or journalists, really. Or, right? You're just right. Using, they're not at yeah, all. Yeah. They're not at all. They're 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 learning a skill set that is otherwise useless, and. Maybe they have amazing things to offer the world, and there is currently no system by which to reward that. And I think that's a damn shame. And when I think about what we have seen throughout history, when we have had moments in which automation has replaced people, you know, I mean, look, it, it creates disruption. Let's not let's not kid ourselves. But what it also creates is incredible innovation. I, I talked to a knitting historian who told me a about knitting historian. What, yes, so <laughs> there's, a, there's a historian for everything, and there's Love a historian it. for knitting. And uh, the knitting historian told me about what happened in the early days of the Industrial Revolution when machines started to do the kind of laborious, repetitive knitting that people used to be hired to do. Right, and the answer is that it. Yes, it it replaced a lot of people who had spent their days making like utility socks, but then you know what those people did. What those people did is they started to develop unique regional knitting styles, which we still have today. I, you know, I mean, some of the some of the, the the kind of distinctive patterns and aesthetics of different cultures around the world and the ways in which they knit that came out of that moment because now you had really a liberation of human creativity and labor that had been sucked up making utility socks mm -hmm. that now was able to be put towards innovation and distinctiveness, something that only humans could do at the time. And that is a value add to the world. Again, that is not to dismiss that there was a lot of disruption and that we need to know how to manage that. But the end result is positive. And I think that that's going to be the case in media too. Do I want writers using ChatGPT? I mean, you know, not if everyone's just going to be like pumping out a bunch of generic garbage and posting on websites, like that's not going to be useful. Will there be some means by which this is helpful? Uh, yeah, sure. I, you know, I mean, I like, for example, an experiment the Washington Post did years and years ago before there was ChatGPT, which is that they had built these internal systems to generate stories that reported election results locally around the country so that human beings didn't have to sit there and do the drudge work of gathering all the numbers and then writing these repetitive stories. Those human beings could now be put to better use by writing analysis and writing and doing like real reporting. And the, you know, the, the basic stories of who won, who lost could be handled by a machine. That seems perfectly fine to me. That seems like value add to the world. So I'm excited about that. I kind of keep curiously popping around in my head, this idea of like a live article, something where you could write the article and then using AI, you can kind of question the article and it can, it, it knows what the writer's tendencies would be. So it kind of answers things as you go along. So maybe, maybe it's not just quantity, but it's like quality, you know? Maybe, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll be experiencing some really interesting tests of consumer behavior, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you know, I, I'm seeing 
I'm seeing people try to experiment now with making things interactive that used to be static. And, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't because sometimes people don't actually want it to be interactive. Uh, you know, I, I think the really interesting thing about the moment that we're in right now for for all of business is that AI can do a lot of things. And we're still figuring out, one, what those things are, and two, what people actually want. And yeah. That second part is often not considered in the hype and in the fear mongering. But I think that fast forward five, 10 years, and you're going to see that a lot of the predictions of AI is going to be doing this for, the, for us and doing that for us may not even hold true. And that the, the most valuable things that AI is doing are things that we're not even conceiving of yet. Wonderfully put, because I, I keep thinking this myself. We keep talking about how AI is going to streamline the way we currently do business. But when and you talk about this in all of your writing, like when you have a paradigm shift, the fundamental ways we do things change altogether. Right. It's not that we're going to create a better way of doing social media as it exists in 2023. Who knows what social media 10, 20 years looks like? It'd be a completely... That's that's yeah, totally true, right? The The major mistake that people make when they try to predict the future is that they think that some parts of the equation are fixed and some parts are variable. And so they think, oh, well, we will only have this amount of X, but now we're going to have machines doing more of that for us. Therefore, there are people out of work, right? That's basically the lump of labor fallacy from economics. But that's not what happens because everything is a variable. Everything, right? So if, for example, uh, you know, if um, uh, here's an example that I just gave on, I was on CBS News a couple of days ago talking about AI and travel. And the host said, well, this is, this is going to put a lot of people out of work as people use AI to create travel itineraries and to research travel and stuff. And I said, I don't think so, because the first of all, people have been predicting the end of travel agents since the internet began, but it's still a thriving industry. Yeah. And now it just it just serves a different somewhat of a different function and the business model is a little different but also think about it this way if ai makes travel research and other parts of travel travel booking travel everything more efficient then it also might make it cheaper and if it makes it cheaper then more people are going to travel and if more people are going to travel then they're going to be need to be new and more jobs serving the people who are now traveling more every part of the equation is a variable and because of that you can't predict how there's going to be something negative and something positive but i think that what we can say is that every single time throughout human history that there has been a technological paradigm shift what we have seen is progress. We have not seen uh, net loss. You see some, again, some temporary loss. Changes lead to disruption. Uh, you know, uh, industries shift. Um, but I think that if we're able to think big and creatively, then you start to see how every single part of the things that we want and do may change, and that allows us to create new balances. Okay, so I've got two questions along yeah. the lines of what we're seeing here. And, and because AI is so transformational, it seems, from yeah. what we can tell, the, the rate at which it's accelerating and mm -hmm. the end result, potentially you may have the first technology that, at least for all intents and purposes, surpasses human intelligence in some form or another. Um, can we prepare for that? Can we even classify this as a tool? And what does society do to adapt if it surpasses us intellectually, if it's, you know, many magnitudes of order more intelligent than us 
and then my I mean, more I would, immediate. I would argue yeah. that that's already happened, right? Yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, my if you, you want to go back, I mean, I understand that these are not apples to apples here, but if you just want to be rudimentary about it, I already. I mean, when I was in high school, I had a TI-85 calculator that was able to do significantly (laughs) more math than I ever could. That thing was smarter than me. It just, it it was, it was, it was a flat out in math, smarter than me. I mean, you know, what happened as a result, what happened as a result is that I didn't need to learn some kind of math that maybe a hundred years ago people needed to know because all I needed to do now was know how to use the tool. And that seems good to me because that's going to free up brain space of mine, brain capacity, where I can go learn some other new things. Right? You know, I mean, we, I, I, I once I was having an interesting conversation with a guy named Lee Rainey, who is the director at the Pew Center for Internet Research, at least back then. I don't know what he's doing now. And he said, you know, an interesting way to look at it is this. A recognized sign of intelligence a generation or two ago was the ability to retain and quickly recall information in your brain. And a recognized sign of intelligence now is the ability to quickly find and Mm. sort information. And is one better than the other? No, they're just different. And it doesn't make sense for us to try to classify one as better or the other because they are the skills that we need now, given the resources available. And okay, fine. Maybe there's some weird world in which like suddenly all technology disappears and we're in some kind of apocalyptic situation. <laughs> and then yes, the people who know how to like make fire out of twigs are, are going to be better prepared. But you know what? That's just unlikely to happen. So I'm not really all that worried about losing things that we don't really need now. Um, I would rather learn how to use tools that are going to help me do the things that I want to do than, you know, just memorize a whole bunch of stuff. And I think that you can apply that fairly broadly to every part of society. Do you think that for the entrepreneur right now, looking at this and and listening to this podcast, um, where do you think they can find those opportunities? Because maybe it is in the sorting and, and helping, you know, synthesize all this information. I think because right now, right, yeah. what, what hits me is we have these monster, monster players that have exclusive rights to this technology right now. But right. where does an entrepreneur wiggle their way in? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I mean, what you're seeing right now is the very, very beginning of it, which is utilizing ChatGPT as the back end for various things. I think that it is just, it's far too early to tell you exactly where to go. I think the best thing that you can do is to start to experiment based on what it is that people need and and how could you be serving people better. Um, and I'm seeing really interesting experiments, uh, you know, with that. I, I, there was a guy who just reached out to me to show me a, a early stage thing that he's building, which is kind of like a, it's like a, it's like a chat bot utilize, I don't know if he's utilizing ChatGPT or some other, uh, you know, large, large language model, but uh, it's like a chatbot uh, trained on individual people's work, right? So you could like train a chatbot on my work. And then what do you do with it? Do you like, quote unquote, talk to me? And that's what he wanted to know. And, and I said, no, you don't use it to talk to me because that's going to be a deeply unrewarding experience for people. Um, and 
I wouldn't promote that to my audience because I think that it would be, it would, it would be a violation of the human trust that I've built, but that's Mm -hmm. not to say it's not useful. So how could it be useful? Well, I'll tell you what I told him. So one way that it can be really useful is that I produce a lot of work and a lot of advice. And it's hard to find that because it lives inside of articles and it lives inside of podcasts. And so if you wanted to go, if you know, if you're like, I trust Jason Pfeiffer and I have a question, how do I find something that he has produced that I can find useful? Um, well, you could either dig around forever or maybe this chatbot is not trained to like act like me, but rather it's trained to just know what I've said so mm. that it can yeah. understand what you need and then it can direct you to exactly the thing that I produced that's most useful to you. I told the guy, if you build that, I will I will put it on the front page of my website. Like that sounds awesome. Um, I trust jasonpfeiffer.com. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's like, yeah. I'm going to have to rush and buy that now. Right. Um, so I think that that kind of stuff is really interesting. People are experimenting right now. I think that it's worth experimenting. It's worth saying, who, what problems do I solve right now? And how do I utilize the best technology and innovations available to best solve those problems? Right? That, that's a question you should be asking forever and ever. Uh, you, know, you should be asking it before AI, and you should be asking it of AI, and you should be asking it of whatever it is that comes next. And I think if you do that, then you are on the path to winning. Fantastic. And, uh, you know, always great to hear insights. I think it's refreshing to hear from you because I, I think you have a much more optimistic way of looking at the future. And and I think right now we're hearing a lot of the doom and the gloom, but there are opportunities out there. There are ways, or at least it seems like there'll be opportunities out there. You know, um, John, John, thank you. John Philip Sousa, uh, famous composer, military marches. Everyone knows. He was deeply opposed to the phonograph, the record player, because he was a live performer. Existential threats back then. And that was an existential threat. And one of his arguments was that people, once they have recorded music technology in their homes, they'll stop learning instruments. Because why would they learn how to play an instrument when a machine can just produce the music for them? Like, why would they bother? And you know what happened as a result? What, what the actual result was? You want to guess? That? Like, what oh. happened? John Philip Sousa worried that once people had phonographs in their home, that the rate of oh. learning instruments would go down. Oh, we what saw the exact happened? opposite, an explosion it, of artists, musicians, labels. Yeah. yeah, an industry exactly could have right. never ex- conceived of. Yeah, Couldn't have conceived of it. Because mm-hmm. to him, he was thinking simply of the fixed... The, the like the 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 thing that he saw as fixed was people's desire to consume music but what he didn't realize was that as soon as people had access to a wider variety of music through their phonographs they were inspired and they mm-hmm. wanted to create more music themselves and the reason why we learn an instrument isn't so that we can hear music it's so that we can create music and he couldn't have conceived of that at the time but that's what happened And I think that we often confuse the tools that we have available to us with our human desires and the way in which we react to and want things in very non-machine ways. So I think that as we see AI start to, you know, make more efficient work that we've been doing or 
do things that maybe we used to think of as drudgery, that we're not all going to sit back and say, oh, well, I guess that that's done now. I have nothing else to do. Instead, we're going to create. And entrepreneurs are at the front end of that. I also totally love that perspective too, that we assume that a lot of the jobs of today are these awesome jobs that we can't see disappear. But you're right. Like maybe we'll have more creativity, more options, less drudgery. Maybe people will feel more fulfilled in their work. That would be a net plus, not a negative. <laughs> I think it'll be jobs amazing. shouldn't exist is the point, even though it's That's difficult right. to go through. Yeah. I mean, and, and every, right. And consider that every, again, every part of this is a variable. Nothing is fixed, right? So, you know, you could, I mean, I heard it was listening to Mark Andreessen, for example, talk about this and engaging with the idea of job loss. And he made this interesting point, which is that, you know, if if a lot of the means of production become more efficient, then things become cheaper, which means that we don't actually need to make as much money to maintain our lifestyles, which means that maybe we don't need to work as much. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, right. Every, every part of it is, again, every part of it is a variable. And right. I don't know if Mark's predictions are going to come true, but I thought that, that was an interesting way to think about it, right? I mean, it's not like... It's not like because you could even engage with the idea that there's less work to do and say, but but we still end up with the same or better quality of life than we have now. Um, you just you just don't know. So instead of spending your energy trying to fight against it, my argument would be that you spend your energy trying to figure out how to make the most of it. Love it. Jason, on that note, uh, I know you're a busy guy. Uh, obviously, everybody, the book is billed for tomorrow. It's been out for a little while now, big success. And then uh, One Thing Better newsletter. Is there anything else I'm leaving out? No, that's it. I'll uh, I'll just uh, double click on both of those. Build for tomorrow is uh, the the subtitle. There is an action plan for embracing change, adapting fast, and future proofing your career. Unfortunately, published really just before the ChatGPT boom, so I don't engage with it that much there. But the principles of what I talk about and how to recognize. Um, you know, the great next opportunity for yourself is, is very much in there. Um, and you can find that wherever you find books, Amazon or, or, or elsewhere or audiobook. And then build or one thing better is this newsletter that I put out every week where each week I give you one way to improve your work and build a career or company you love. And you can find that at the website, one thing better dot email. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jason. Appreciate it. Thank you.